Hello, and welcome back to the latest edition of the Company Watch podcast. These past 70 weeks or so have been quite a journey. When the pandemic began and the government and banks moved to support businesses, workers and families, we thought it would be helpful to dig into these issues as they were announced and discuss the impact they might have on our world of credit and risk management. When we started, we didn't really have a plan. The idea was that Nick Hood and I would look at the news and discuss the potential impact of the announcements for people who are trying to manage their customer and supply chain risk in a really rapidly changing environment. Now we've got over 70 episodes recorded and we've gained listeners, friends and feedbacks that we couldn't have imagined. As we are all coming to terms with the reality that we will be living with COVID for months and even years to come, we've been wondering what to do with the podcast. After all, the crisis footing on which we started is in that overused expression, the new normal. Well, I'm delighted to say that Nick and I have decided with your feedback that we're going to continue. But in the spirit of reinvention, we're going to expand our reach and bring along a series of guests to join our discussions and add their views of our world. To launch this new format, we're also finally giving the podcast series a formal title. And so I'm delighted to welcome you to the very first episode of On The Spot. In each episode, we will put a guest on the spot to share their views and experiences with what's happening in our world or in an area of financial risk management that they feel passionately about. And I don't think we'll be able to resist going back to our duo format when we get some particularly big topics to cover. To launch our first on-the-spot episode, I'm very pleased to introduce Peter Smith, who not only has extensive experience in managing supply chain risk, but has just launched a new book, Procurement with Purpose. Um, also p- putting Peter on the spot is my regular co-host and industry veteran. I don't think Nick minds me calling him that, um, <laughs> Nick Hood. So Nick, great to see you again and a very warm welcome to Peter. Welcome to our first on-the-spot episode. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, and it's a pleasure um, to be here again. Fantastic. Well, Peter, first of all, congratulations on the um, the new book, which we will um, talk about uh, during the course of this episode. Um, but for those of you who don't know Peter, I'll, I'll just give a, a brief intro. Um, so maths background, which is quite interesting. I think that's what we'll, we'll come back to. I don't know how a maths graduate from Cambridge ends up being a, a procurement um, guru, but um, Peter will, will no doubt put us on that journey. You started your career at Mars confectionery, then went on to become procurement director for Dun & Bradstreet, um, UK Government of Social Security, and then at West Group. And then that's when your your journey kind of starts into um, into, industry and and that kind of expertise, strategic um, procurement function. So you're president of the Chartered Institute of Purchasing and supply, I think, in 2003. Um, and, and now I think you hold roles on, on various different organisation um, bodies advising on, on strategic um, procurement. And I think it's fair to say that you're kind of on a mission, aren't you, to help with procurement um, best <laughs> practice. You've got a fantastic um, blog, which Nick and I have mentioned in the past, particularly your Greensill um, oh. articles were, were, were excellent. That really helped us um, unpick some of those, those thorny issues. It's called Bad Buying. Um, there will be a link to that in the in the socials that we put around this. And publishing a number of books, the latest of which is Procurement with Purpose, which was hot off the press, I think, this week. So um, congratulations on, on that. Thank so you. welcome, welcome, Peter. So let's let's go back to this maths. You're a maths graduate and you go into procurement at Mars. 
what's that, that about? Peter, how to explain that to us? Well, the, the truth of it is uh, I, I wasn't really very good at maths. I, I, I was one of those people who could absolutely do it up to A-level and get 100% in all the exams and then went off to Cambridge thinking I was a maths genius and after about three weeks realised I really wasn't. And, <laughs> and, the, and the problem was, what I, what I realised was I was really good with numbers and I like numbers, uh, but maths at Cambridge doesn't have many numbers in it. So I, I wanted, I didn't want to go, you know, go into academia or do anything totally um, mathematical, let's say. And I looked at general sort of uh, graduate training schemes and Mars was one of the very good ones and paid better than almost everybody else. So I went to Mars and actually thought I was heading to, to marketing. I worked in the factory for a while, thought I was heading to, to marketing. And I, uh, I, I was working actually in sales for a while and um, I, was, I was either talent spotted as a, as a great potential purchasing person, or they were desperately trying to get me out of sales because I was so bad at that. Uh, <laughs> you, you can take your pick on that. So I went into purchasing, not really having ever thought about it uh, and loved it and actually lo- have always loved it because it is one of those roles where you do have a combination of a lot of analytical work and, and clever analytical things you can do around markets and suppliers and bidding processes and all the rest of it um, but it's also intensely interpersonal you know you yeah. are continually talking to both internal stakeholders suppliers um, you're not sort of sitting at a computer uh, in, a, in a darkened room all day so um, yeah a, a brief spell in general management along the way but I, I always enjoyed procurement so I did the, um, the sort of procurement director CPO thing then a few years of consulting, mainly in government, uh, then got into writing, discovered the world of blogging, ran the Spend Matters website in Europe for a few years and, and started writing books. And uh, Bad Buying came out in, in late 2020 and procurement with purpose in uh, November 2021. So um, so that's been quite exciting. Having having written about bad buying, I thought I needed to write about the good side of buying as well. Hence, and, and, and of course, I mean that is so so relevant, isn't it, at, at the moment, especially with um, with with COP twenty six just just happening. I mean, the the environmental agenda is obviously at top of of, of lots of, of companies' agendas now. In terms of um, obviously the, the pandemic that we've we've been through um, has has added a whole new complexity to to the world of of, of procurement, and and I guess I, I'd be quite interested to to know. If you if you were managing a team now, what would be the things that are, are keeping you awake at night? What would you be what yeah. would you be worried about, and what would you be doing to to try and kind of mitigate risks? And what what would you see those risks as being? And which I guess is that's a really hard question because I guess it depends on the industry. But in broad terms, what? Yeah. Well, it, it's I, I suspect. It, it must be the most challenging time for procurement teams of, of you know, the entire 30-something years I've been involved in the, in the function, the profession, um, because we're seeing a combination of factors that, that we haven't seen for an awful long time. So inflation, uh, I mean, my very early days in procurement was the sort of tail end of the, the 1980s inflation boom. Um, mm. but, but, you know, most people in procurement who are, who are younger than me uh, have no experience of prices going up at, at Five percent a year, let alone ten or twenty percent a year, um, which is happening in some areas now. So you know, inflation is a huge shock to the system, but also the supply shortages we've seen coming out of the pandemic, and some of those are short term. But I think the longer term challenge and opportunity is the the, the geopolitical environment, if you like, and this is partly being driven by COVID and um, 
organizations and countries realizing how vulnerable their supply chains were. Uh, and, and when you all your supply of PPE is coming from China and Malaysia, and suddenly there's a global shortage, it's quite hard to turn on new suppliers. You know, the UK didn't have a PPE in domestic PPE industry left. Mm. Um, so procurement is struggling with inflation, it's struggling with supply shortages, thinking longer term about the resilience of its supply chain. Should it be bringing uh, sourcing back more locally or even, even insourcing? You know, we're seeing sort of vertical integration going on for the first time in, in, in my lifetime, pretty much. You know, it's, it's been all about outsourcing and offshoring. But presumably the, the things that made outsourcing and offshoring um, attractive in terms of the price um, and the economics that you could you could deliver on, on those things, you know, clearly then there's got to be cost implications coming back. So yeah. that, that, that kind of balancing between certainty of actually having supplies, but also the increased costs, you know, and this well, is before you consider inflation, I guess, anyway. I, absolutely. And that's that's a, a real challenge because it's uh, I imagine there are procurement directors going to their boards and saying, yeah, well, I can I can bring this production back in house or we can find a local supplier in, in Doncaster or Derby or whatever. Um, but it's going to cost you 20 percent more because that's why we started buying from China or Malaysia or, or South Africa in, in the first place. Um, so, so there's some real interesting pressures there. And, and for the NHS, for example, you know, they, they've set up more. Um, domestic manufacturers of things like PPE, but it's going to be more expensive than buying from China. So, so once the supply from China and so on comes back on stream, you're going to get finance directors in the NHS saying, well, I, actually, I know we were supporting that nice local firm that's set up to make masks, but my goodness, it's expensive. So there's some real, and there's no magic answer to all of this. It's real challenges. And the one thing I would say um, in terms of advice to procurement people, is they've, they've got to engage with their internal stakeholders and the board and the CFO and the COO. These, these can't be decisions procurement can make on their own. Yeah, and, and Peter, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, I've been um, CEO of uh, a couple of, of, of listed companies, um, and of course, then as an insolvency practitioner, looked at what has, what has gone wrong inside companies, um, you know, the, the, not just the numbers, but the root causes of some of them. And uh, it, it's one of the curious things working with um, with company watch is that both your principal markets are, um, if you like, Cinderella functions within too many companies. Even now, there are many fewer. But you know, whether you're a, a credit manager or you're a procurement manager, the answer is having the ear of the board. Um, you know, you're dead right, Peter. You have to go and make friends on the board because the chances are that the head of those functions won't be on the board. Yeah. That's the that's the really worrying thing is they're not there, yeah. they're not in the room. No, that's absolutely right. And and you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if you're not on the board as long as you can work at the right level. Right. And as you say, have the ear of the right people. Um, but I think too often procurement is seen as it's just been seen as you know they're the people who buy stuff that sort of keep things going, um, <laughs> or maybe they do a bit of cost reduction but the strategic role of procurement isn't understood. However, what I would say, going back to Joe's question, I, I mean, the fundamental, most fundamental role of procurement, going back to my time at Mars many years ago, was about keeping the factory running. So uh, it, it's no good procurement having a great strategic vision, you know, if the Mars line is shut down because I didn't actually order the right packaging for it. So procurement is always trying to balance those operational drivers 
and necessities, really, with the more strategic role you can play around things like risk, sustainability, we probably come on to competitive advantage, all that, all that great stuff. But you have to keep things going as well. And that, I think that point about, you know, your, your, your point about procurement being seen as a kind of cost reduction um, centre, actually, you know, reducing costs on day one, if that is going to lead to a factory shutdown on day 30, day 60, because you haven't got the, you haven't got that certainty <laughs> of supply, suddenly doesn't look like quite, quite such a saving anymore. I guess it's, it's, it's trying to get that message to the right level. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and some of the more, uh, I won't say humorous because it wasn't funny for the people involved, but some of the more entertaining stories in bad buying are, are around just that. So the classic a couple of years ago was, if you remember, Kentucky Fried Chicken mm. running out of chicken. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that was, they changed suppliers, logistics distribution supplier, uh, which I assume, I don't know this, but I assume was probably done for cost reasons. Mm. Um, but they they probably didn't make absolutely sure that that supplier could absolutely do what they said they would uh, and they perhaps there was something didn't go right with the project management and the planning of the transition um, but you know they, they, they will have lost far more money from having to close shops for, for days or weeks than they probably saved on, on a distribution contract so there, there's plenty of cases of, of that happening I think. Absolutely and it's interesting I think you're, you've got another nice um, article you know, tangent, tangential, I suppose, to this slightly, but but the same the same idea is that you kind of assume that as a as somebody who wants to buy something, you assume that there will be a supplier who can supply you with that 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 that, yeah. that good. And actually, and I think you make a quite good point. That's not always the case, as we've seen quite dramatically, I guess. In yes, uh, yeah. In the well, there's, I mean, there's some interesting examples of that in government, and it can just be a short term issue like PPE. But the interesting case in, in government was the probation services outsourcing, where it was really a, a sort of political or policy idea. And there was an assumption that if we put this requirement out to the market, somehow there will be great suppliers who can come in and manage probation better than all these long-serving civil servants. Um, and of course, there wasn't because there was no market for it. You know, nobody else was buying probation services other than government. So, so why you'd suddenly think that these firms would be brilliant at it, I, I don't know. But there's a naivety there. And it, it covers a range of things. It covers uh, things like people not doing the checks that your industry is all about, you know, taking on suppliers without looking properly at financial risk and so on. Uh, I've seen companies asking for references, not, not financial, but actual, you know, business references. Yeah. Tell us three people where you'd do a similar service. Um, and then not actually taking them up. It's a bit like when you recruit staff, you know, if you're going to ask for references, for goodness sake, make the phone call and, and check them out. But and also I, check and actually check that the businesses themselves, you know, are genuine businesses. Like I think I've heard um I've heard people tell me about about like kind of very soft business references. And when you actually look at the, the businesses that are being given as references, they were kind of established a year ago and you know are not really the kind of businesses that you actually want the reference and um, the reference from. Yeah, I had one case, I can't remember whether I put it in the book or not, where um, we thought we were going to buy a new product we needed uh, from a particular company. And it turned out the salesperson from that company was in league with two of our own internal people in, in the company I worked for and had sort of set up a new company to supply this item and, and was pretending it was still coming from the salesperson's previous company, if you like. <laughs> 
Um, and uh, we probably didn't do the proper checks. Luckily, we, we did find out before it went too far. But uh, all sorts of weird things happen in business, as you two will know very well. <laughs> yes, I, I, I well, uh, well remember, you know, the perfect example of not, not doing your homework properly was once being appointed uh, receiver by one of the high street banks over um, three pubs up in Lincolnshire and discovering that um, the security documentation taken by the bank was in one case um, in the name of the wrong company and the two other cases in the name of the wrong properties. <laughs> you know, and nobody had actually joined up the dots and gone and checked in that sort of nitty gritty way that, <laughs> that that people should do. Just extraordinary. So the bank if had no look, security at all. If if you remember the uh, the case of the um, the ferries that, that, that the government appointed um, to uh, yeah the post Brexit. Oh, yes. concerns. So they appointed ferry companies, you know, in case we couldn't get stuff into the UK. And one of them turned out to, to A, have no boats, which is a bit of a problem if you're a, if you're a ferry company. <laughs> um, but also when somebody looked on, on their, their website and discovered that their sort of standard terms and conditions and so on on the website related to a pizza delivery firm. And they, they'd obviously sort of cut and paste these and stuck them up there because they needed something on, on that page. So you know, sometimes a little bit of research. And actually, I mean, there's a big, about a third of the bad buying book is around fraud and corruption. Yep. And and the number of times that a finance director says after it all happened, oh, this was a very sophisticated fraud, very clever criminals, internal or external. Um, and when you look into it, it wasn't clever and sophisticated at all. It was somebody set up a fake company and, and started paying Invoices or issuing invoices from fake company, um, and really it's a basic, basic checklist, isn't it? It's a basic, really basic. It's a basic checklist of things that you can do that would take what half an hour, maybe an hour to yeah. just, just join a few dots. And those, are, and those, I suppose, those are things where you just think they're going to look. It's so obvious if after the event you you look yeah. back and discover these these these, yeah. these warning signs, and so just trying to do them before and of course you know no people have there are lots of other things going on and maybe had limitless amounts of time but I do think there's a there's a kind of a quite a salutary lesson in what you're you're saying in your in your book and your blog yeah well, there's, there's, and there's another point actually Joe and uh and, and Peter it's something I bang on about in in, in blogs on the, uh in the insolvency world is remembering that it's no good taking on a new supplier and doing those credit checks and, and reality checks at the start of the relationship and then never doing them again you Absolutely. know never updating your yeah. um you know your your knowledge of of your key supplier that you know that if you lose you lose your whole supply chain yeah. um, it's same on the credit side but um, you know it's i i i won't um, interrupt Peter because he's got much more interesting <laughs> things to say but you know you find it over and over again you know you say yeah. why are you still dealing with these people because i can tell you that they were always going to go bust and bring you down, but yeah. you didn't look. Well, there was just just very quickly on the fraud front. Since I wrote the book, there's there's one that came up. Actually, I, I've got a friend who who was working for this company at the time, but he wasn't the guilty person. Um, but the biggest sort of optical lens company and related company in the world, which I think is Swiss Italian owned, um, they had a fraud that was basically a fake a fake invoice fraud, fake fake supplier fraud in their business in Thailand that cost them more than their annual turnover in Thailand 
I mean, they're still trying to recover the money, but just think about the scale of that. So it's like, you know, if they were turning over $100 million a year in Thailand, this was this was wow. equivalent to that amount. Um, and it must have been a combination of insiders and outsiders for it to get that much money out. But you, you do wonder about the uh, a number of the checks they might have had that nobody spotted that much money disappearing out the door in, in Bangkok. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, we, should, we shouldn't yeah. laugh, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah, but again, I think it is just that uh, you know, as Nick was saying, that kind of ongoing, um, ongoing supply. And, and, and to be fair, I think we're we're finding more and more that you know people who are using our services, for example, are are looking at monitoring and supplies. I think in yeah. the past, the that that kind of um, that onboarding journey had stopped at the point at which a, a supplier was was starting the relationship, and then there wasn't that kind of break. And on the credit side, I think that's always been much more of a, a kind of routine of, of, of periodically checking um, credit. But if if the supply keeps keeps coming, even if there might be a few delays here and there, the that kind of regular checking wasn't happening quite quite as much as perhaps it, it should have been. So I think that is a, a lesson to to learn. And to, again, to do those other other checks, just to check a website, to check to check out references and, and so on. Yeah. Um, and I, the first of all, I, want, I wanted to kind of um, to spend a bit of time on the the new book that you've written, Procurement with 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 Purpose. Mm. And this is a really we were talking before we started um, recording. It's such a tricky issue because everybody, I think, more or less, is on board with this idea that you know there are big environmental um, issues that we have as a as a kind of world have to to start dealing with, and there are there are ways. You talk about in the book that, that organisations have got quite a lot of power in in bringing about change, but at the same time, there are there are going to be cost implications. There are all kinds of processes and logistical challenges, and 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 trying to kind of navigate a course that actually allows change to happen whilst maintaining profitability and and, and good business um, is not an easy. Not an easy, um, not an easy thing to, to do. So, Peter, have you got the answer for us? <laughs> um, well, I'd, I'd, I'd love to say yes. I, first thing to say is it is complicated because in in the book, um, I'm covering trying to cover the range of environmental issues. It's not just climate change. You know, it's it's pollution, waste, deforestation, water, um, but also the social issues mm-hmm. and social and economic issues. So, diversity and inclusion human rights, you know, encouraging apprenticeships, encouraging more disabled people into work. You know, there's a whole range of things. So um, it is complicated, or at least there's a lot of content there. I think I think a couple of points. I think one is if you talk to the, the leading companies in this, they will say you shouldn't necessarily think it's going to be a cost because they're, they're, they're not doing it actually for the good of their health or just so the CEO sort of feels good when she meets her friends at the weekend. Um, they're, they're doing it for good business reasons. So they're doing it because customers are demanding it or they can actually use it in their marketing to drive uh, more business competitive advantage. They're doing it because it's regulatory. So frankly, they have to do it or they'll get fined. Yeah, uh, They're doing it increasingly because investors want them to do it. Um, and I interviewed an old friend of mine who now runs or is on the board of a couple of absolutely massive pension funds and when they're giving the mandates out for the investment companies and banks to sort of look after the billions they're demanding that they are doing the right things in these areas and expecting those banks to be pushing the companies they're investing in to do it so you're getting a drive from from 
the investment level, uh, and that will mean there's actually a lower cost of capital to firms that are doing the right things. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, there's a number of stakeholders who are driving this, and, and companies are saying, well, you, you know, we're doing it because we, we're going to have an advantage if we do it, frankly, or, or if we don't do it, we'll have a disadvantage. Um, so I think that's the first point. I think the second point is it can be a bit intimidating if you're just getting going. But do realise also that, that no organisation can do everything. So, so I, I mean, I touch on about 25 different issues in the book and nobody, not even Unilever, uh, who probably Unilever believed, is one of your beacons of... Yeah, of, and, and we interviewed the global procurement director of Unilever. But, but even he would say, we realised as we got into this that we couldn't do everything that, that we could conceivably do in every one of these areas. So, you know, they focus on things like like plastic packaging because they use a hell of a lot of it. Um, Long-term collaborations with the packaging industry to get more uh, lighter weight packaging, more recyclable, compostable packaging. They also look a lot at at things like uh, deforestation because they buy a lot of palm oil uh, and, and other products, helping their growers of coffee and so on in the developing world. Um, from a human rights point of view, making sure they don't have forced labour out in their supply chain. Um, but even Unilever are focusing on, on the areas they feel they can really make a difference and that their, their stakeholders care about. So I think the message to any company getting into this is don't, don't be intimidated. Don't feel you have to do everything at once. Uh, maybe climate change, other than the regulatory stuff, isn't the thing you should put most of your, your attention onto. And... You know, if you're if you're a smaller firm, you might be able to do a lot more by perhaps supporting minority-owned businesses in your supply chain, or supporting local firms that are employing, you know, kids who come out of the care system, offering apprentice apprenticeships to to disadvantaged youngsters. So, so there are things any any firm can do. Um, it doesn't have to be putting your flag up and going, we're going to be net zero in five mm-hmm. years' time. Because frankly, nobody really knows how to how to do that yeah. anyway. And also there's no I, I was I was talking to um a couple of again kind of SME um business leaders who were saying actually there's a quite there's quite a lot of confusion how you even measure something like net net zero. There are lots of different ways of oh yeah looking at, at the actual the starting point let alone you know how you then improve things so I think yeah. that's what I, I I kind of was 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 keen to know what your kind of low-hanging fruit would be um from from this point of view how do you get started well and, and I mean even on climate change you know and, and emissions there are things you can do and low-hanging fruit uh look look at your business travel policy and, and what you're doing on that and I mean that's one of the areas where currently has COVID has sort of helped. <laughs> um, uh, and, and look at the, the transportation, look at what's going on in your supply chain in terms of your logistics providers. Um, you know, I see people in encouragement to use more electric vehicles or hydrogen-powered vehicles in, in supply chains and, and so on. Um, talk to your supply. If you've got any vulnerable areas, are you sure that you're the company that cleans your offices is, is not, you know, abusing people who are coming into the country who maybe shouldn't be who then get paid two pounds an hour and, and so on, which we saw in the in the, uh, the fashion industry not that long ago in, in the UK. Uh, it's not just the fashion industry that happens. Um, so, yeah, but but I mean, the emissions thing, going back to your comment, it is it is difficult. And, and when we 
we probably won't get into it now, but when we get into the scope three emissions, which is, is what your suppliers are doing in terms of emissions, and you're supposed to report on that and understand that, that that's going to be a, a huge challenge in the next few years. And, and we'll need some more some more standards and ways of doing things and better information and, and data if that's really going to work. Peter, just a, a thought. I mean, how serious do you think the overall commitment in uh, in a UK business is to, well, and also multinational, of course, to ESG. I mean, do you think if we have another really tough year in 2022 with more variants, do you, do you think the current focus on ESG will survive? Uh, it, it's a great question. I, I think it will. Um, undoubtedly, for some organisations, it is leading to, to conflicts and different pressures. And uh, a, a good friend of mine who's just actually moving out of NHS procurement sort of dropped me a note the other day and said he, he was beginning to see those pressures building, that, that the, you know, the good intentions in a number of areas were coming up against, yes, but we haven't got the budget. Um, so, so it will happen. But I think to some extent what we saw, what we've seen in the last 18 months, um, the ESG drive has continued through you know really difficult times um and actually in some ways if it's pointed out things like how much we all depend on each other i'll, I'll go all, all all sort of happy claffy here um, you know we're an interdependent world how the natural world and and viruses coming from animals and so on might can affect us um We've seen big companies helping out smaller companies in their supply chain by paying more quickly, for instance. So we saw we saw a lot of good behaviour, um, and I think the fact it has survived the last two years is is a good sign. But for for individual companies and organisations, there will there will be some challenges, and I'm sure somewhere, you know, there's a procurement director being told we'd love to buy the recycled stuff, but if it's ten percent more expensive, we don't want to afford it just at the at the moment. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you, Peter. I'm I'm kind of conscious that time with these with these podcasts is never on our um is never on our side, and and I think we we already agreed that we probably could spend the whole day <laughs> talking about these issues. Um, but I suppose can I can I just ask? Is there any final final thoughts that you'd like to leave with our audience who are, are mostly um in the procurement risk or credit risk um yeah. business trying to deal with these these kind of conflicting problems of of as you say you know wanting to, to to do the right thing having cost pressures and keeping their organizations running you know from a, a kind of a back office type functional yeah. there obviously we here would, would think they're much more central to that what what message could you leave them i, th I think it's probably reinforcing something we touched on earlier that, that in in both the books the bad buying and procurement with purpose it, it's absolutely clear that that these issues aren't just about the procurement function or procurement people. So, so to implement any of any of the programs, purposeful business type programs, will go way beyond procurement. You know, it will involve budget holders and operational people and finance people. And similarly in bad buying, when you look at the the, the biggest disaster stories, whether it's fraud or Berlin Brandenburg Airport costing billions more than it should, um, you know, it's not it's not sort of a person in procurement who let a bad contract. It's, it's an organisational failure. So my final conclusion in bad buying was if, if you want to be an organisation that's good at procurement, it, it really has to be the whole organisation is good at procurement, not just you have 10, 20, 200 skilled procurement people sitting there because lots of different people play a part in, in, in this. 
And, and it's absolutely true with the, the sort of purposeful business agenda as well. So, so I think a key role, any procurement directors and leaders listening, uh, one of your absolutely key roles is, is driving that commercial understanding and capability more widely across the business, not just in your own team. So there's a, there's a, a, a finishing thought, I think. Fantastic. Thank you very much. That was such, a, such an interesting um, conversation. Thanks so much for, for joining us. And Nick, as ever, thank you for, um, for, for, for joining me on this, this first episode of, of On The Spot. We look forward to welcoming more guests over the coming weeks and months. But for now, Nick, Peter, thanks very much. Everyone, goodbye. <laughs>